This is Christian LaCour, and you are listening to Caribbean Power Lunch. Podcast World. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Valley, and today we are talking to Christian LaCour, of Atlas Power Energy. Christian LaCour is a Haitian on a mission. The mission is to get Haiti to energy independence by 2024. The solution is a system designed by Atlas Power called CARIES, also known as Compressed Air Renewable Integrated Energy Solution. While this system has been years in the making, the mission started as a result of a fire in Christian's home at the age of four. Yeah, so I actually didn't acknowledge it as a near-death experience. There was a blackout and I didn't think anything of it. It was a common thing. You just you didn't have electricity sometimes. That's just how it was. That's just how life was. Yeah. So I went to sleep. It was probably fairly early in the evening, probably around like maybe eight or nine o'clock. You know, I get really, really hot and I wake up and the way my room was set up, I still remember it to this day. When you enter through it, there was my brother's bed and then there was my bed. And between those two, looking at the exit on the left side, there was this dresser that it was kind of a mobile storage closet. It had linens, towels, toys, typical children's room stuff. Right. And... I remember waking up and, you know, that thing was on fire. What's up? <laughs> I was just like, okay. So I screamed, you know, mom, fire. And she comes in and she's like, oh, snap, their bedroom's on fire. And I'm just like sitting on the bed, literally three, four feet away from the fire, just, just watching this thing go, go up in flames. But anyway, she got my brother and I out and, uh, that was the first thing I remembered about that night. And then I remembered my neighbors laughing. Laughing? Yeah, they were laughing. And I remember the smell of that room because, you know, we had to clean it up. It was a concrete house with the mosaic tile floor. So thankfully, the whole thing didn't burn down. But, you know, we had to scrub it by hand and repaint it. But the smell of the soot stayed in the room. So my neighbor's laughter... And the smell are the two most prominent things I remembered. And the, the reason why my neighbors were laughing was after I talked to my mom and I was asking her, like, okay, what happened? What was going on? In her panic, she was asking them, okay, what do we do? Do we call the fire department? Do we throw sand? Do we throw water? And in her head, having the option of calling a fire department was hilarious to them because they were like, phones are not working. There's a blackout. You know this to be true. Like, what do you mean a fire department? That was the first time. That was the first instance. Wow. What a time. So wait, how did you all get out of that? We got out pretty okay. The neighbors, they helped put out the fire bucket by bucket. The way my room was set up, it was right next to the bathroom. And, you know, between those rooms, there was this big drum of water that, you know, we would keep filled, you know, to shower and stuff. So... You know, when it came time to put the fire out, it was just, you know, a matter of just taking that water, throwing on as many things as possible, and then just bringing in water from the outside and refilling that drum to keep the supply going. Wow. So no fire department, man. So that's crazy. You had another near-death experience when you were seven years old or three years after? Yeah. So that one, I didn't really see it coming and I didn't realize that I was in danger until I had basically gotten home, thankfully. There was a riot going on and I ended up leaving school because like they canceled school. So they were having people, you know, pick up their friends and family and, you know, pick up your kids and whatnot. And I just decided, mm, I'm not gonna wait for my mom. I'm less than a mile away from home. I'll just walk myself. And I walked and Little did I know, the riot was just passing through my neighborhood. And it felt like a, a gaga, which was like during Mardi Gras season, they have these demonstrations or parades where people are, you know, they're singing, there's music, they're just kind of marching and 
they're celebrating something. So when I got caught in it, I thought that's what it was. So I'm like, oh, you know, I'm fine. My mom usually doesn't want me to watch these things, but they're not being violent. They're just chanting something. So it's fine. So I make it through and I'm basically on my street. I'm about like maybe 20, 30 yards away from home. And all of a sudden I start hearing gunshots. I'm like, what is going on? And all of a sudden I just see people running. So of course I book it, I start running and I get home. And it was, you know, afterwards that I found out that that was a riot. Like this was what they were telling people to not go out, you know, pick up your kids for it and, and everything. So that was a, an interesting experience. And it's funny because my brother and my mom didn't know about that until I started telling my story because I wasn't supposed to walk home by myself. So I got in trouble for that. Right. Yeah, you know, that riot that was going on, I kind of got caught in it. It would have just made things a whole lot worse. So I just like kept it to myself for years. Wow, that's amazing. So I understand you weren't as lucky the next couple of years when, because you, you used to try to steal electricity, no? Yeah. So at that point, I, I connected the dots, right? You know, people rioting, people being unhappy, water not running. It was all because, like, electricity wasn't constant. And I didn't really know what this whole electricity thing was or how it worked. I just knew that I needed it. So if I find it somewhere, I'm just going to take it. Okay. So the same neighbors that helped put out the fire, they had this, it must have been like a, a number 12 or number 14 gauge wire running from somewhere going into their house, right? Really, really thin wire. So I see this thing and I'm like, there must be electricity running through it because the whole neighborhood doesn't have any power, yet I can hear their TV. So they have electricity. I want to watch TV. I'm going to just take some of theirs and everything will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So I get a knife and on this live wire... Jesus. (laughs) How old are you? Like 10 at this time? Like about 9 or 10. So I have no idea how much danger I'm in. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm stripping back, you know, the insulation and I'm, you know, everything's fine. And I take, you know, my wire and I connect the two and immediately just that spark right in my face. And that's when I knew that mortality applied to me. Like, that's what I met my maker. It was like, it was literally like lightning just like really up there close in your face. So it scared the hell out of me. I dropped the wire. I ran through my running. I actually ran through the live wire that went to the neighbor's home because the houses were next to each other. And his wire kind of piggybacked off of my house, jumped over, and then went through. So, you know, that's why I was connecting. So I ran through that wire broke everything and got home and just pretended that I was never there. Didn't get in trouble. Didn't die, obviously. Well, But yeah, that was the first time that I, I realized electricity was dangerous. And I'd, I'd been shocked before. Oh, you'd just been shocked before? Well, that time I was playing hide and seek with my brother and there was this outlet behind my mom's bed. It, it was afterwards that I realized like my mom put bed there to cover up that outlet but i didn't know that so playing hide and seek i go hide behind the bed and it's an uncovered outlet and all of a sudden they switch the electricity on so i get a nice tickle on my back (laughs) (laughs) so that was the first time i've been shocked with ac and my brother and i we used to you know take our toys apart and try to put them back together and mess with batteries and things like that so through the whole investigating how electricity worked, I'd been shocked a few times, but nothing fatal, nothing damaging. So what did you learn from that, Christian? Electricity is dangerous and you can die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that knowledge, about a couple of years later, we moved to Boston. How did we end up moving from Haiti to Boston? How did that happen? There are a lot of factors that played into it. First, my, my brother was born in New York. I was born in Boston. You know, my family, we had always talked about going back. There was just never a, a question of when, right? So when things politically, when things got dicey in 2003, 2004, 
and then you add on personal issues that, you know, my mother was dealing with in her marriage. There are a lot of domestic violence issues that we just had to get out of. Right. So when it got that hot, you know, we just had to get out. So we stayed with my uncle for a little bit. And, you know, when it was time to move, my brother and I, we flew out first. We stayed with my my other uncle in Brockton for a little bit. And then, you know, my mother joined us and, you know, we just kind of bounced around between Boston, Malden, just, you know, the suburbs right outside of Boston. Okay. So you're both born in the States and then you go back to Haiti. But, but how come? Because, I mean, I mean, a lot of Caribbean people who grew up in those kind of tough economies or grew up in that kind of tough lifestyle who have the opportunity to live abroad, they jump at that. So what was that about? I think that was more of a, a decision my mother made and we just, we didn't question her about it. But in hindsight, you know, I'm glad that I moved back to the States when I did because just the schooling alone, like Haiti follows the international baccalaureate program. Okay. And it wasn't until I believe my junior year in high school that the public school system in the U.S. started implementing that in some schools. So when I came to the U.S., that first year was a waste of time. And I tell everybody that I didn't learn anything except how to make friends and be comfortable speaking English. Yeah. How was that adjustment period for you? Because, yeah, you grew up in, in Haiti, you're speaking French, and then you have this, I'm sure you have a very thick accent at the time. So, I mean, how was that, let's say, naturalization process for you going across to the United States? I don't really consider it a process because when I was in Haiti, I, I went to a private school. I was fortunate enough to go to a private school. And there, you know, we had to learn English and Spanish. Oh. You know, that was just kind of a thing. I didn't know if, you know, that was the standard across all schools in Haiti, but my experience was private. So that's the only thing I can talk about. So I had learned about English a little bit. And I remember listening to Michael Jackson and Voice to Men. So English had been familiar enough in my ear. So when I came here and I was staying with my cousins, you know, my cousins, they didn't speak French or Haitian Creole. And you know, my uncle and my aunt, they had to go to work. So that first six or eight months we were here, it was like English is mandatory. You know, my brother and I, we would talk to each other in French and Haitian girl from time to time and we'd call my mom. We'd speak in our native tongues, but for the most part, English was kind of mandatory. And we spent a lot of time just watching TV. I spent a lot of my time at a library playing RuneScape or reading and just over time, I don't really know when I lost it because I came in January and by the time my mom came, which was around June, July, we were speaking English fluently and comfortably. Right. And by the time the school year started, they tried to get me to be in a, in a bilingual class. And my mom was like, absolutely not. He doesn't need it. So they stuck me in this like in-between space. They call it an immersion program. Right. Funny thing about that, most of the students in that class were Cape Verdean. So from time to time, the teachers would speak Portuguese or Cape, you know, Creole, Cape Verdean Creole to them. Right. There was no opportunity for me to take advantage of that immersion program. It was just English straight through. All right. So with this background, right? So, I mean, you had all these experiences at home. You had a, had a fight that you had to run away from. You almost electrocuted yourself. You shot yourself a couple of times at home playing around. So you go and you study electrical engineering at school. Is this because, hey, that you know, just had this lingering curiosity for electricity and electrical engineering? Like, how did that happen? First, I didn't even know it was called electrical engineering. Basically, how I ended up there. I get to high school and I had two goals, graduate early and be as nerdy as possible, which sounds a bit strange. You know, I remember, you know, just through watching TV, there were these cliques, right? The jocks, the emo kids and whatnot. I thought that's what high school was really going to be like. So after, you know, I finished eighth grade and I went to high school, I joined the chess club, the math team and the science club within the first week of school. 
Ooh, you're a bright boy. <laughs> and I stayed in, in those clubs all the way through senior year. And I just tried to be like the nerdiest kid possible. But my brother had a different plan. He, I guess, had a, a pact with my mom to keep an eye over me. And our, our high school is actually pretty big. It's it Brockton High School. At the time, it was 4,000 kids. My senior graduating class had 909 students. So really big school. So I guess my mom was worried. She told, hey, keep an eye on your brother. You know, we got each other. So my brother was like, okay, fine. He's more artistic than I am. And he joined the high school choir his freshman year. So here I am coming up behind him. He finesses something with the guidance counselor and the teacher, and he pulls me into this concert choir class. And I don't like it, but it's an easy A. Sure. Why not? So yeah, I'm, I'm in this class and, you know, I'm making friends and I'm in the bass section and I don't know if they did this on purpose, but the way the seating was, all the freshmen were in the front row and then sophomores were in the second row and juniors, third, seniors, all the way up in the back. And for some reason, whatever, I end up getting seated with the sophomores. So I'm hearing conversations about people planning for college and things like that and whatnot. And I'm not paying attention to it at all until one of my good friends who was a senior, it was time for him to apply to schools and things like that. So I keep hearing this question, oh, where are you going next? Where are you going next? So I get stuck in small talk and I just ask him, John, what's going on? Where are you going next? And he goes, I'm going to WPI. And I go, never heard of it. Me neither. <laughs> Good luck. So senior year comes around and I'm looking at colleges and I said, John was a pretty smart guy. I liked him. You know, nerdy guy like me. He went to WPI. Let me apply there. Lo and behold, I get in. Freshman orientation. Everybody's talking about classes and majors and things like that. And, you know, just like in high school, I came in with a goal to be like the nerdiest kid. I came into college, you know, say, hey, this is expensive. I ain't got money like that. So <laughs> we're actually going to try to graduate early. I didn't graduate high school early, by the way. That, that's something I completely failed at. But I, because I was on the, on the math team for four years in a row, you know, I ended up, by the time my senior year rolled around, I was taking advanced level calculus and all of my other classes were, were AP level classes. So I did achieve that, that goal of being like the nerdiest kid possible, but I didn't graduate early. So when I got to college, I said, okay, no messing around. You don't have the money. You got to graduate early. So hold on. So you went high school slacking off in this math club and that's why you didn't graduate early. That's what happened. No, I didn't slack off. It's just for some reason, I never found that, that magical door to early graduation. It was every time I went to my guidance counselor, she was just like, okay, well, here are these more difficult classes you can take. She kept doing that. I never flat out asked her, Hey, how do I graduate early? So that was, that was how I messed up. And I learned my lessons. So when I got to college, I was like, Hey, I went to my, uh, I forget the title they gave the guy. But he was basically like a, a generic advisor to help students decide on a major. That's like an academic advisor or something like that? Yeah. Okay. So I go to WPI, which is Worcester Polytechnic Institute. It's about 50 miles west of Boston. And I go there and classes start. And, you know, I go to him, said, I don't really know what major I'm supposed to pick. But there's this thing that I've been doing ever since I was little, for as long as I can remember. Shocking yourself? <laughs> can you point me in the right direction? And I opened this notebook. This was the only thing that I took. Like when I left Haiti, this was the only thing that I took and I kept. It was a notebook of electronic parts that I had ripped out of appliances and radios. Had no idea what they were. I just glued them on a page. And I said, you got to find out what that is. And I just basically created an album of electronic parts. So I take it to my advisor and I ask him, hey, what is this stuff? And where can I learn more about it? And he goes, oh, that's the electrical department. But, you know, I've been hearing people talk about, oh, you don't want to do electrical. You're going to be in the lab all day. It's difficult. Don't do it. So I'm like, okay, let me do what's 
what seems to be popular. So I ended up going with mechanical and electrical because I wasn't going to tell my advisor, I'm not going to listen to you. So I, I started out as a double major. And I think 75% of the way through my freshman year, I end up taking this class, this engineering class called statics. It's basically a math class that lets you calculate why things are not moving and why it's a good thing. And that class is completely, completely in American units. We're talking pounds and feet and weird stuff. And I'm just like, I get the concept, but this just doesn't make sense to me. So I stop going to class. I start teaching myself the material. Final comes around. I take the entire final in standard units, newtons, meters, millimeters, things like that. That I understood. Kilograms. I converted everything, did it in international standard units, and then converted all the answers back. Wow. And somewhere in my conversion, I messed up because I ended up flunking that final. And it was the first class I'd ever failed. Oh, snap. And I am just like completely devastated. And I said, you know what? I'm done with mechanical. I'm going to hang out with the physics majors because they make sense. I'm just not going to do mechanical. (laughs) (laughs) And right around that same time, because I wasn't too sure about the whole electrical thing. So I was taking an applications of electrical engineering course where they were just talking about what it's like to be an electrical engineer and what are the types of problems you end up working on and you know what you end up solving. And at the end of the course, they were asking, hey, so are you going to be electrical? And before I had taken my statics final, I said, nah, you guys are talking about medical devices and communication and that's not really where I'm at. I'm trying to figure out power system stuff. So I'm not going to do that. I take my final, I fail. I decide, okay, I'm not doing electrical or mechanical. So what is going on? On the last lecture of my applications to electrical engineering class comes a guy and he starts talking about the Nantucket Sound Project, which was a wind farm project that they've been trying to get off the ground since I was in high school. So four years ago, and he's talking about like this windmill. And I'm just like, this is what I've been looking for. This is it. So from turning my final paper in that lecture saying, no, I'm not going to do electrical engineering to then going to my advisor and say, sign me up for all of the electrical engineering courses. (laughs) (laughs) That one thing, that Nantucket windmill. That one lecture, that one windmill. And, you know, that's why I say sometimes where you are is really a miracle because, you know, just existing, it's a, it's a one in what, 400 billion things going right. And then just these events happening in your life. If I had been distraught from my final and decided not to go to that lecture, I would not be chasing my dream right now. Well, you might be chasing another dream. I'd be chasing another dream, but certainly not my childhood dream. Or maybe I would still be chasing it, but I would not be where I am. And I'm, I'm very grateful for where I am. Yeah, I mean, so speaking about your dream, right? After you graduate, you spend a few years in a different electrical engineering jobs and so. Mm-hmm. And like, what makes you decide to say, okay, let me start my own company and let's try to get independent energy sources for Haiti and other neighboring islands? How do we get... From day to day. Finding a job was hard. (laughs) (laughs) My senior year, I'm doing my design project and all these people are talking about, yeah, I have a job lined up before I leave, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm still trying to get my senior project to work. My senior project, given the scope, was originally meant for four people. I tried to do it with just me and one of my friends. We had a falling out, so now I'm stuck with a project that's meant for four people, and I'm doing it just by myself. And then the the scope of the project just kept creeping and creeping and creeping, and it was just getting so ridiculous. I had no time for a job or anything like that. My sole focus was graduate. Just get that project to work and graduate. So I wasn't looking at jobs. I get an A on on my final and you know, I graduate and everything. But now like I'm just looking around all the good jobs have been taken up by people who were ready. So 
I'm just, you know, scrapping around trying to find something. And my senior project was associated with the solar decathlon. I don't know if it was like a student-led initiative or I don't know who started it, but the American Department of Energy just a couple of years ago decided "Mm, we're going to get college students to build zero energy houses, right? These houses that you can be fully off-grid. You don't have to be connected to a utility. It just generates its own power for everything that it needs, heating water, cooking, everything. So out of desperation, I got associated with that project and that's why the school kept creeping and by the time i graduate they're like yeah you know you've designed this fantastic house you've built parts of it now let's go to china and build it for real and compete and i'm thinking if i go to china i'm not gonna find a job but if i don't go to china i might miss out on a once in a lifetime opportunity so i decided to go to china spend a month and a half come back and I'm just absolutely done with the architectural engineering industry or the engineering contractor industry, building houses, building buildings, designing electrical systems for that. I was completely done with it. I didn't want to do it because the architect that I was interacting with, my relationship with him was very, very rocky for loads of reasons. But just looking at career, I was just like, I don't want to do this. Let me do what everybody else is doing. Go work at analog devices and build computers and firmware and maybe work at Apple and Microsoft or what have you. I wanted to go back to electronics. But my course load was so focused on power systems that that was almost not an option. So when I came back and I finally did get a job at Bureau Apple, an award-winning global firm, they have a lot of small firms in a a lot of different countries. And one of their like hallmark projects was the the crown stadium that they did for the Olympics in London a few years ago. And mind you, like I I took that job out of desperation, right? But you know how sometimes the Lord just kind of backs you into the corner and you're just right, yeah. taking the right things. So I ended up working for that company for a little while. But between them hiring me, And starting the job in 2014, I want to say, to me coming back from China in mid-August, that time span, I said, you know what? It's going to be a race between me getting my company off the ground and somebody else hiring me. Because if nobody's going to hire me, I'm just going to hire myself. So that's kind of how it started where I said, okay, let me just try to do this. And a friend of mine from high school, also through concert choir, you know, I called him up. He had a marketing and, and finance background. I said, hey, I've got this idea. I think we can do this. And he said, okay, get the product to work and we'll talk more. What was the idea? The idea was, have you ever watched Back to the Future? I probably did because I, I just feel like everybody did, but I can't recall anything actively from it. Okay, so there's the scene where the main character goes sees his family, his family in the future And the house is powered by something called a Mr. Fusion, which is basically a a household nuclear power plant just miniaturized into an appliance, right? So some way, somehow, that idea got implemented in my head, and I, I figured maybe I can miniaturize nuclear power in a way that is really small and safe. So you can, you know, put it in every single household and everybody can have a Mr. Fusion. Interesting. Little did I know that nuclear, the reason why it's not popular, even at scale, right? When you have these mega power plants, the reason why it's not popular is because it costs a lot of money. And if you mess up, the cleanup, the damage is just... Nuclear? Yeah. The damage is nuclear. It's, it's too much of a risk. Now, if you look at the advancements that have been taking place in that industry, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of really great breakthroughs that have made nuclear electricity very, very safe. But if you try to convince people, hey, I'm going to put a tiny nuclear power plant in your house, it doesn't really sit well with them. 
And unfortunately, I didn't find this out until I had been burning money and just trying to get this thing to work for about a year and a half. This money that you're burning, was it your money? Was it investor's money? It was my money. I had a little bit of money saved up from, you know, doing sales, you know, between one school year to another. I would pick up like small jobs and and doing sales and whatnot. So I had a little bit of money saved up, not a lot. So I figured, okay, I can probably get something working that working enough that I can get more. And my goal was five watts. Just create a miniaturized nuclear power plant so I can charge a cell phone. How small is this? Is it like the size of a box? Is it the size of a of a table? What is- oh, I was trying to build it in my bedroom. So it had to be smaller than, than a table. You were trying to build a nuclear power something in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you really did not learn. <laughs> I did not. And this is where the line between naive and crazy is, right? But this was my first rodeo. I had no idea that I was in complete crazy land. So yeah, I was building this thing in my bedroom. And, you know, it's just every time, you know, I had something working, it would just get too hot and just melt itself apart and I'd have to start over. So I did this for, I want to say like nine months And he was just like, okay, we just have to stop. And I was just like, no, I can get it to work. And I promise just, okay, fine. I'll go talk to some people and prove to you that people want this, right? And I went to talk to some people and they were like, wait, sorry, you're doing what? How does it work? What's happening? And that's when I realized how difficult it is to sell someone a product because you have to get them to buy the concept of it first. That's right. You have to educate them. Yeah. If you educate them, then you have an easier time. You can't just hand some, and this goes with everything. You can't just hand somebody something and say, here, it's good for you. Buy it. They want to know like, how is it good for me? Or because you don't know me, I know me. So I was trying to just get someone to say, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. And it just, it wasn't happening. So I said, James, you're right. We pulled the plug on it. We dissolved the company. And back then, it was called Atlas Powers. It was an LLC. We take that down. I suck it up and I end up working in the industry for a little bit. And I end up going to a lot of very interesting places. But what I got from working in the field, specifically in the architectural engineering and construction industry is you know, how these things actually get put together, how you go from a power plant to charging your phone. I got to see the whole system, the whole distribution system in action and what goes into it and how complicated things can get just inside the building. And then once you get outside the building, you know, that's a whole different monster that, you know, utilities focus on. So the first dream was to end blackouts in Haiti. Yeah. Right. No more blackouts because that almost killed me three times. You just, you got to put it into blackouts. But, you know, as I got older and my dreams started to grow with me, I decided, you know what? Haiti's a very beautiful country and we have a lot of mountains. And from watching a lot of anime in high school, I've come to understand that Japan shares that. Japan has a lot of mountains and it's a very beautiful country. Never been to Japan, but you know, I intend on going. From what I've seen in, in shows and, and anime, I'm drawn to them. And I was looking at Japan, I'm like, wait a minute. You can go to Japan, hop on a magnetic levitation train, and see a good chunk of the country. Whereas you go to Haiti, and it takes you like three hours just to get out of the capital. Because there's so much traffic transportation is something that has to get fixed. So I decided, okay, I'm going to build a national maglev transportation system in Haiti. 800 kilometers of absolutely beautiful elevated railroad. And on that, you can you know run telecom and it's just a fantastic project all around. And then I do the math and I realized, oh, this is going to take 50 years to build. And in today's money, it's going to be $13 billion, which is higher than Haiti's GDP. Right. So I said, okay, how do I get to that? All right. Well, first, you can't do a magnetic levitation train without electricity. So that's when I came back full circle. 
And I started focusing again just on fixing blackouts. Let me just make my money fixing blackouts, then I'll build magnetic levitation in Haiti. Sounds like good business. <laughs> you know, you got to pick your battles. Right. And I didn't know how to do it, but decided to go on vacation. And I met this entrepreneur who recommended this book to me called The One Thing. I think it's Gary Kellner that wrote it. A great book. I, I recommend it to anyone that is tackling a complex problem or just, just trying to figure out how to win at life. And because I don't take vacations very often and I'm a hardcore nerd that just happens to be a little bit extroverted, I go on my vacation in Haiti and I'm at the Decameroon Resort. This is a nice place in Haiti. Yeah, this is what? Oh, this is probably the most well-known and the nicest resort in Haiti. Okay. It's actually where they host the Haiti Tech Summit. Absolutely beautiful. It's an all-inclusive resort. We're talking food, booze, tennis, swimming, painting, like massages. Like It's just an absolutely fantastic time. If you've never been to Haiti, go to De Cameroon first to really get a feel for what it's like when things are not going haywire and then start looking, start asking, try to get out of the resort a little bit or just, you know, people that are in there, the locals that are working there, talk to them and, and ask them, you know, where else can I go? What are the experiences? What are some of the other things that I haven't seen? And they'll probably tell you, you know, go to Labadie, which is up in North, go to Ilavash or, you know, some other places in Gunaive and, and things like that. But I always say, if you've never experienced Haiti before, De Cameroon should be the first stop. And then you can figure out, you know, where else you want to go. But I'm not like, I'm not a spokesperson for them. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I hope they have a check for you. I hope so too. It'd be nice. They have absolutely fantastic service. So, you know, I, every time I stayed there, I've just, I've loved it. But yeah, so I'm, I'm at the resort. I'm laying by the pool with this book in my hand, reading. And in it, they have this formula. What is the one thing you can do today so that blank and blank can be null and void or easier to tackle? So me being me, focusing on how do I solve electricity, and now hearing about climate change and solar panels and global warming and all that stuff, I've got these two thoughts just like battling in my head for commitment. So I asked myself, okay, what's the one thing that we as a human race can do today, not in the future when batteries are cheaper or when we stop being scared of nuclear? What is it that we can do today that will make all of the socioeconomic issues associated with climate change easier to tackle or null and void altogether? And then the entrepreneur in me added, by 2030, while making money. So I rolled around with that and I said, okay, they're just electricity and climate change. They're kind of, they go hand in hand so often that I'm pretty sure if you, you know, fix one, you fix the other. So I said, okay, let me just focus on renewable electricity and, and deploy that and just try to figure out a way to deploy some type of solution that is either wind or solar or hydro, what have you. Find something within that space that you can deploy really quickly and that's not going to have the issues that the existing technology is having right now, right? Because why doesn't everybody just go out, buy solar panels and batteries and be done? Right. It's because batteries are expensive right now. So I said, okay, the solution has to be cheaper. So how do you get to that? So after I came back from that vacation, I left that resort. We had the toughest, and it's still difficult for me to, to talk about today, the hurricane season happened, right? And we saw people get completely devastated. I started watching what was happening in Puerto Rico on a daily basis. I created a Google alert that's still running today. And it's just telling me what's going on down there. And people were committing suicide because they ran out of gasoline and didn't have power. They didn't have the necessary things for them to, to survive. So they were just calling it quits. And that feeling 
brought up that same feeling I had my freshman year in college when the earthquake hit Haiti. And I didn't know if my family was okay. So that feeling of helplessness, I was just like, I'm not just going to sit in this and not do anything again. So I said, I have to do something this time. I have to do something. So I went back to the drawing board. I looked at everything, every single way you can convert some kind of energy into electricity. I looked at it and I said, how is it made? Why isn't it being fully deployed? What are the limitations? How can it be improved? And I looked at everything. And I was watching a lot of TED Talks. This is actually where the, the listening on double speed came in really handy because I would just you know find a TED Talk, put it on double speed and just get right through it. So when you say you, you could read at 350 to 400 words a minute, you mean you could listen to 350 to 400 words a minute to an audiobook? Well, I haven't measured the audiobook, but the reading word, that is at 350. A minute? Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I get a headache if I do it for too long, but <laughs> the last time I measured it, it was, yeah, it was right around 350. That's actually when all of that, you know, came in together because I just, I had to learn faster. Right. I had to learn faster. And I looked at all these different, these different ways, these different solutions. And I landed on this one video by David McKay called Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air. And I remember watching that video and thinking, that makes a lot of sense. And the solution that he talked about was, and he was focusing on England, and he was talking about how you get solar from one country and wind from another and hydro from another, and you have all these different solutions that work. And if you decide you're not going to do one, you just got to go hard on another one. And it was on a macro level between countries. And then I thought, well, why can't you do that on a micro level? You take all these different technologies, you combine them in a single package and you deliver it to the user. So that's what I started mulling over. And within a month's time frame, I had something reasonable. I ran out the room and, and got myself a provisional patent. A month after that, I started the Cleantech Open program. You left your room and just got a patent? Literally, I was <laughs> I was in my room and I got up <laughs> and I went to the next room and called up a lawyer that I knew. This was the same lawyer that I used for the, the nuclear concept. And I let that patent die. But I called him. I said, hey, I've got another idea. I think it's going to be great. He was like, great, coming in my office on Monday. But times didn't really work out too well. But bottom line, I, I got myself a patent as fast as I could, Good. which was... It was a good thing and a bad thing, but you know we can talk about that another time. Went through the the Clean Tech Open program and graduated, and then you know I just kept going through iterating the design and just trying to make it better and better. And on January, yeah, twenty nineteen January, I'm sitting there. I'm presenting the concept for you know a big power plant. That's basically a combination of steam. You include solar in that to start the whole process and you do all of your energy storage with compressed air because you don't want to use batteries because batteries are expensive. So what's the next cheapest thing? Water. Well, you can't do water everywhere. So what's the next option? Air. That was the, the selection process real quick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would have the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in January, I'm, I'm pitching this thing and, you know, this guy that's has like a degree in physics or whatever, some, doctorate guy you know he looks at my system and he goes oh wow, that's really cool but how come you're not using carbon dioxide and i look at him like he has three heads i'm like why would i use carbon dioxide like how does that even make sense and he goes no 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 look into it i promise like you should look into this so that was january I spend all of February looking into carbon dioxide and it's it's a fairly new concept it's basically, you know, a steam power plant, except you're not using water, you're losing high pressure carbon dioxide instead to, you know, heat it up, compress it, run it through a turbine, and, you know, that's how you generate electricity. So I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm reading all these benefits and, you know, the people that I've been working on it. And I'm just like, this is the edge. 
this is as good as it gets. And they've cracked it. They just haven't commercialized it for whatever reason. So I decide I'm going to take the system as it is, miniaturize it even more, and use carbon dioxide. It Less components. It's a simpler system overall. And the components that are being used in it, like a car mechanic is familiar with them. Right. Just running compressors and heat exchangers. They know how to do that. So is carbon dioxide essentially like the missing link, the answer to all your problems? It was because I couldn't get below 100 kilowatts. And I wanted to get below 100 kilowatts because, you know, a house, that's five kilowatts. That's easy. I wanted to get that low so I can serve the residential market, so I can sell directly to people, not have to sell to you know, a mansion or what have you. But carbon dioxide is, it's very interesting because it moves a lot faster than steam and it's a lot denser. So all of your components where you look at a turbine that's, you know, running steam, it's huge, right? A carbon dioxide system that's the same capacity is going to be a lot smaller. And when you get that small, things start to spin a lot faster. And that, that's the real challenge. Because if you go too small, then your bearings don't work. You can't build it because things are just, they're literally spinning too fast. And if you build it too big, there might not be a market for it because you just can't deploy it fast enough. So that was the first challenge. I was like, okay, let's, let's figure that out. And just through more digging, I found out that some of the national labs have already solved this problem. The problem that they're having is with a completely different component that is a lot simpler to, to work with, and that doesn't have any moving parts. I said, hey, that's my bread and butter. I took enough thermodynamics to, to be dangerous. <laughs> you know, entrepreneurship is all about figuring out. You can't be scared that you don't know how to do something. You just got to go for it and, you know, keep going. And then if you make a mistake, just ask people, hey, am I doing this right? And they'll tell you, yeah, you know, great, keep going. Or they'll tell you, no, you messed up here, here. You're crazy. This is never going to work. They'll give you all sorts of negative feedback that you can then use, right, to get better. And that's exactly what I did. I kept telling people, hey, I'm going to do this. And they were like, oh, well, you're missing that and this. And, you know, this is not working right. And I just, I kept going through that loop until I got to a point where I was like, okay, now I'm going to pay somebody to run simulations for me. And, you know, I got on this platform called Upwork. Yeah. I'm familiar with Upwork. Yeah. So I, I looked for a couple of engineers that, you know, had access to the software that I didn't have access to. Paid them, you know, 50, 60 bucks, sometimes 300. And, you know, they just ran my simulations for me. And some of them came back like, hey, this is not going to work. You got to fix this and that. But some of it was basically confirming, you know, my back of the envelope calculations. And I got really excited about that. And that's actually how I know, like, even though I haven't built a full prototype yet, I know what else to compare it to. Like, I just know. <laughs> It's like when you like two plus two, you know it's four. You know it's four. So that's how sure I am that the carry system is going to work. Because I've done all the calculations. I've had other people run the simulations for me. And they came back confirming that, yeah, if you build it this way, it's going to work. So just for the audience, right? You mentioned the carry system. Let's let the audience know what the carry system is. Right. The carry system is basically what I came down to when I was talking about assembling all these different renewable energy technologies, right? That's the answer that I came to. It stands for Compressed Air Renewable Integrated Energy Solution. That's like the third name. <laughs> yeah, the right. third name that I got to. But it's exactly what it is. It's a compressed air system. Like you think compressed air, you can think of it akin to the engine in your car. Right. or the engine on a plane, right? It sucks in air. You give it electricity, a motor sucks in air, the air gets compressed. And then later when you want to use it, you throw in, you know, fuel, you ignite it, and, you know, it blows up and you get more work out of it. That compressed air system for energy storage exists. It's something that they've been using for years. So what I decided to do was just take the combustion out because the whole issue is fossil fuels. So 
find a way to do it without combustion. So I needed heat, right? And I tried a couple of different avenues and I basically came down to using the carbon dioxide system because you know it's small, it's efficient. Right. And the waste heat from that, you can put it back in the compressed air system and basically have a renewable energy system that's running. Solar panels, solar reflectors that are heating up your carbon dioxide system and then compressed air that allow you to run the entire unit 24-7, 365, minus a couple hours here and there for maintenance. Yeah, so I mean, I get it. I I get the passion behind this. I get the level of detail and I get the whole climb and the the climb in terms of putting this product together and trying to put all the pieces of this puzzle together. Understand that the mission is really is really bigger than you, right? So the mission is really to get Haiti to energy independency, right? Yeah. And you mentioned that there's there's a cycle, right? There's I guess three arms of the cycle. Three, I don't know if it's a collective term, but whatever. To break the poverty cycle in Haiti, and it's all about one, food and water, mm-hmm. two, telecom, and three, of course, electricity. So let's kind of expound on that a little bit. Right now. To meet the needs in Haiti, 80% of those needs are met by importing fossil fuels. 80%. And going through the, the clean tech open, I looked at other countries. 168 by the time the program finished, and I kept going, I got to 192. And a lot of these small islands in developing states are calling, depending on imported fuel that much, is a national security threat. Because if something happens to that supply, right, all of a sudden you can't provide clean water, you can't provide security, you can't provide food. There's a whole lot of things you just you can't provide your people. And that's exactly what's happening in Haiti right now. Agriculture is suffering. Water sanitation is suffering. Security is suffering. Because like there are no cameras, no public cameras running because electricity is not running 24-7 in Haiti. Right. So I figured, okay, let's just look at the hierarchy of needs, right? People, within a couple of days, you'll die if you don't have water. So no matter what's going on in in the global economy, you need to make sure that as a country, all the way down to the individual, that your source of water does not depend on anyone else. That's number one. So these people, they they fast for days and days, sometimes months, but you're a lot less agreeable when you're hungry. So if people are hungry, you know, you best believe that if that need is not met, they're going to break something. There's a riot just waiting to happen. So you got to make sure that the local agricultural sector, how they produce food, how water is being treated and producing crops is a lot of crops are water intensive. So it goes again. You got to make sure that you have the electricity to pump the water. So I said, okay, let's let's just focus there so that if anything else is going on, at least people have food and water. Right? I was looking at a report that we're talking about how much money people send back to Haiti. And I think 80% of it is to meet day-to-day needs, just food and water, which doesn't make any sense to me. So that's the first step. The next step in the hierarchy of needs, a lot of, a good portion of Haiti's GDP comes from the tourism industry. And the tourism industry cannot flourish if people don't feel safe in your country and if they cannot be entertained. And where we live today, if you ain't got internet, if people get bored real quick. (laughs) It's true. Like, have you ever tried like a a blackout day where you, you just, no no cell phone, no internet. Have you tried it? Um, no, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, like, if you're not used to just forgetting your phone random places like I am, you lose your mind. Because <laughs> yeah. you try everything is, oh, you got to Google this, you got to Google that, you got to ask Siri. And if she tells you, sorry, I can't answer that right now because I don't have internet, you get mad at Siri when it's not even her fault. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Poor Siri. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Siri. So I figure, okay, let's just focus on internet for the tourism aspect of it. And then looking at specifically the Caribbean, the way that people were able to rebuild after Irma, after Maria, is through telecommunication. People had to know 
where you were, what you needed, how long it's going to take to get to you. Information became critical to people literally surviving. So I said, okay, just for disaster relief alone, because every year, you know, hurricanes come through and then you flip over to the Pacific. It's the same thing. Every year they get typhoons. So just for disaster relief, telecommunication is a must, right? So if you focus on electricity to fix those two things, then all of a sudden fixing everything else becomes a whole lot easier. But you can't create a resilient economy without renewable energies. It's the first step. And and not just in Haiti, everywhere. It's the first step to have an economy where it's self-sustaining, where you're not depending on aid or remittances to actually grow and and build roads and, you know, provide healthcare and and things like that. Your economy just, it has to be self-sustaining. So I said, okay, that's the bar. No more, you know, so many dollars below the poverty line. Let's use that as a measuring stick. Does that country have a resilient economy? If not, let's just Give them renewable energy until that's fixed. And then after that's fixed, then you move on to the next thing that you can fix. Is it a political issue? Is it a social issue where it just like their customs just don't allow for certain things? But at the base of all of it, people need food, people need water, people need to communicate. And you need electricity to meet all those needs. I got you. I got you. So your company, Atlas Prime Energy, your goal is to get Haiti and its neighboring territories to energy independency by 2024. I mean, real quick, just give me your action plan for that. Real high level, 2020 is to get all of the testing done. 2021 is to get manufacturing ramped up so we can you know, deploy the 15 kilowatt unit for telecom towers, small hotels and small farms. And then, you know, beyond that, we'll move on to the next tier, which is the 30 kilowatt and the 100 kilowatt unit. And at that point, we'll actually be able to sell electricity behind the meter here in the U.S. And what that allows us to do is it it allows us to basically build up, I don't want to say a line of credit, but there's no other metaphor that's coming to mind for us to build a lot more of these units so that we can target bigger hotels. We can target hospitals and and security stations and things like that. And even industrial units. And that's by 2022. And then 2023 is basically stabilizing that and teaching people that you can gang these units together the same way you can, you know, put a bunch of solar panels together and, you know, have megawatts of capacity. You can take container that's a 100 kilowatt unit paired up with, you know, a 30 kilowatt unit. And then there you go. That's your solution. Or, you know, you can gang multiple 100 kilowatt unit together, put them on a boat and do disaster relief that way. So that's what we're looking to pilot in 2023. And by 2024, we'll be signing the papers to be a wholesale independent power producer for Udiash. So that's the plan is to have a a 30 year partnership with them to basically supply them with electricity. Just tell them, Hey, you know what? You've been trying to do distribution and generation for years and years. And here's where you got, you're losing $16 million a month. It's not working. So let us handle generation. You handle distribution, actually collecting what you're owed. Okay. How are you paying yourself right now? How are you, <laughs> how, are you, how are you surviving? <laughs> how am I surviving? Well, I, I was working full time up until a couple of months ago. And, you know, I, I decided to, to make the plunge and get this off the ground, at least make the plunge until, you know, the crowdfunding campaign is done. And then maybe I'll go back to work. But yeah, right now I'm back at my mother's and I'm living off of brioche and a her cooking. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's not too bad of a deal. but Yeah, I would love to live off of my mother's <laughs> cooking right now. I love some of that. Okay, so is the government giving you any support in this? Do you anticipate any support in the government? Because I'm, I'm guessing that you'll need to partner with them in some form or fashion you know, to get this implemented. From the Haitian government, you mean? Yeah, the Haitian government, correct. No, I actually haven't approached them. And I had someone that was, he was a, uh, 
recommended to me by my mentor when I was going through the clean tech open. This guy that, you know, he does a lot of business in Haiti and he goes down there regularly. So he'd just be a good guy to talk to, right? And, you know, in talking to him, I, I found out that he was also getting involved in the energy space. And, you know, he was working with the government because apparently they had a request for for proposal to supply electricity to Erdiash. Like, I had no idea how he found out about that. I wasn't too plugged in. I figured, let me just get my tech working and then I'll worry about, you know, proposals and whatnot. But he was doing traditional, well, actually, I don't even know if it was traditional wind or solar, but, you know, he was at that stage where he was taking in proposals from the Haitian government and trying to get grants and things like that. And you know, I saw him a couple months ago and apparently that just completely fell through for whatever reason, maybe because of the political instability that's going on right now, they pulled the plug on that program. So for me, depending on the Haitian government for support is actually not part of the plan at all. I intend to completely develop this through the support of the diaspora and grant money from the U.S. government because once it works in Haiti, it'll work everywhere else, right? So it's just a matter of taking that technology and say, hey, New England, I know you don't have capacity for all of the natural gas that you're building for. Here's something. So start playing in the wholesale energy market here in the U.S. to kind of sustain the company financially until the government hey, to decide, hey, you know, this could be a good idea. Let's go talk to them. I, I'm one person with a lot of volunteers and occasional contractors here and there. I just don't have time to be playing around in paperwork. My red dot right now is to get the money to build the prototype. Then it's going to be build the prototype, tested in Haiti, announce the results at the Haiti Tech Summit 2020. And once that is done, I'll take a step back and go, okay, where do I go from here? I don't like to try to figure out where they're going to be you can't connect the dots looking forward. And that's absolutely true. This is my immediate plan right now. This is what I intend to do long-term. But in terms of who's going to come in and do what and things like that, I'm going to let go and let God on that one. Hey, man. Man, you sound like the new Haitian hero. You're going to be the new <laughs> Tucson level too, man. <laughs> Not quite. He was a real revolutionary. I'm trying to get people to, you know, donate a few dollars here and there online. He was get, trying to get people to risk their lives. So that's a whole nother life. <laughs> that's a hero. I'm just one guy with a really good idea that won't stop. All right, man. So how do we get people to participate in this idea? I mean, tell us about this crowdfunding campaign. How do we, how do we jump onto this? So the crowdfunding campaign is it's actually ending this November 9th. But we're looking to just, you know, raise the money to buy the remaining parts to build the prototype. Because even like from my explanation, I know I made it seem very simple. But if you kind of picked up on the subliminal message of there's a lot of engineering and simulations that had to be done. No, yeah, we picked up on engineering and simulation. Trust me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These parts, they're, they're not readily available. So they have to be custom made to work at the high temperature and the high pressures that we're working at. And, you know, I can't build that in my bedroom. <laughs> so buying those parts and, and having having those parts made is, is what the money is going towards. And there is a company that specializes in making the heart of the, the carbon dioxide cycle. They've done it for Sandia National Labs and MIT and a couple of other places as like testing rigs. So I, I want to hire them and say, hey, these are my operating parameters. I know it works. Can you give me a 3D manufacturable thing? And I've had that conversation with them. They said, yeah, absolutely. Just get the money and we'll get it going. So that's what that, that $86,000 is going to. So beyond this crowdfunding campaign, beyond November 9th, how do we get involved? Basically, just raising awareness because I really want this to be a solution that was taken forward by the people, right? Because, right. you know, the traditional route, you get VC money and this and that. There, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And we've heard that story. And me personally, I'm tired of it. I'd much rather hear the story of Pebble, where a lot of people, they thought, hey, having a digital watch is kind of cool. 
they put it out on Kickstarter or what have you, wherever they started, you know, a bunch of people rallied behind it, turned it into a reality. And now Apple and Samsung and Microsoft are copying that tiny company. Yeah, That's a narrative that I can believe in. Because if you say, yeah, Haiti was completely pulled out of poverty in less than five years by the Haitian diaspora, not by international aid or what have you. And we're not going to turn the international aid down. Don't get me wrong. But it completely changes the narrative that, you know, Haitians leave and they stop caring about Haiti. That's not true. It hasn't been true for me. It hasn't been true for my family. It hasn't been true for a lot of Haitians that I've met. And it hasn't been true for, you know, some people that I haven't met that I've just been testing on social media to really see what's the, the motivating feeling and the motivating feeling to help Haiti is still pride. We're very proud people. We know what we've accomplished. We're used to doing the impossible. You just need the right platform, the right idea, the right vehicle. And I think this could be it. I really do. And it's just $86,000 you need to start? Yeah, it's not much compared to VC. You hear, you know, Facebook raise millions and whatnot. Like it's, it's just the 80s because I'm not, I'm not trying to take a salary. I really just want the money to just build that first prototype, test it in the field, see how it performs. And then I can, you know, tell people for sure, yeah, it is going to run 24-7, 365 minus an hour or two a month for maintenance, which is going to drive the cost down at wholesale to less than three cents per kilowatt hour, which if you look at what is happening in solar and wind right now, it's right there. And it's a lot easier and faster to install. We're talking a drop-in replacement for a generator that doesn't run on fuel. It runs off of sunshine and heat. Hey, Christian, this has been great, man. As we get ready to wrap here, I just have two questions. One, where can we find you? And two, is there anything you want to leave us with that we haven't covered this evening? You can find me, you know, if you reach out to me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, just type Christian, spelled just like the religion, with an H and everything, Lucor, L-E-C-O-R-P-S, you know, just message me on social media or reach out. And if you have something really pressing that you want to know, you can just text me on WhatsApp, 508-345-6909. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> if there are any entrepreneurs out there listening, my one advice that I would give is the whole point of entrepreneurship is just is figuring it out, right? Just because there is some really sound advice out there on the internet doesn't mean that it's going to be sound advice for you. After all, like they're just, they're posting what worked for them and what they had to figure out, right? So be very careful about the advice that you take, especially if implementing that advice doesn't result in a benefit for the person giving it. In other words, if they don't have a vested interest in your success, think twice about taking their advice. That's the one advice that I would give. It applies to me too. Like if what I just said doesn't, resonate with you and it doesn't guarantee your success, then by all means, keep taking advice from random people. <laughs> it, it's your success. But like for me, this is what's worked. I don't take advice anymore from people that don't have a vested interest in my success. Podcast work. There you have it. The Energy of Haiti with Christian LaCour. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at CaribbeanPowerLunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Podcast World, Christian. Thank you. We are out. 